From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 166 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just okay. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. We've had beautiful weather, blue skies. Mm, nice. You know, fall is in the air, although it was in the 90s yesterday. But, uh, you know, leaves are starting to turn on some trees just a little. Good. So it's, um, yeah, so it's very nice. It's very cheerful. Yeah, so. we uh, we had a little bit of decent weather. So it wasn't uh, perfect weather, but... Uh, we actually had days where we didn't even get to 85 degrees in oh. Florida, which that's that's a huge accomplishment. But then again, it only happened because everything weather-wise is going crazy down in the Caribbean and the Atlantic mm-hmm. Ocean. And it seems like every other day there's a new tropical storm that has a 100% chance at developing. And so it's Florida has been we, – we've been – relatively lucky lucky at least in central florida that is we've we've been very lucky through it all but yeah it's been uh it's been wild with how the weather's just been bouncing around here and we have about another month or so to go through hurricane season until we're out of it so hope hope nothing uh nothing too crazy happens but yeah keep our fingers crossed yeah Yeah. so i know sometimes you don't like to to view uh POVs of attractions before you experience them. But have you seen the Beauty and the Beast attraction video at Tokyo Disneyland? Yes and no. So because <laughs> I, I know it's posted on the disc. <laughs> yeah, I actually I am the one who sent it to Jackie. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I saw it pop up, like before any other site had even written about it, I saw it pop up. And I sent it to Jackie immediately. And I was like, you need to write about this as quickly as possible. And it's like, just, just get it out there, spread, spread the word on it. And so I watched just to make sure before I sent it to her that it was actually legitimate. I, I did watch bits and pieces of it, but from what I saw, I wasn't. I didn't love the quality and I know that's just me being snobby and I like, I like stuff shot the way that I, I film it. So that's, that was coming through, but yeah, I, I watched bits and pieces. I was like, I'll wait until something better comes out. And Mm -hmm. then once a better one came out, uh, by the time I found it, I, I think it was pulled down for copyright or, uh, Oriental, land company just didn't want it up at all and so they they made them take it down i'm not sure what the case was but i'll I'll keep an eye out for for the povs that come because i've already seen enough now that i'm okay ruining it for myself but i i i want to if i'm gonna ruin it completely i want it to be in the best quality possible yeah it was um yeah i agree with you about the quality of the video and the person sometimes i got a little dizzy watching it 
as the teacup vehicles spun around. But um, it the attraction itself looks amazing. It really yeah. does a good job telling the story. The effects are amazing. They do a great job of diverting your attention. Like in the, of course, the big scene is the uh, be our guest scene. Mm-hmm. They do such a great job diverting your attention as they load up the table with more and more audio animatronic figures. And um, it, it was very impressive. And I, then I got to thinking, okay, where could this be built at Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom? Because, you know, sooner or later, it's going to make its way to other parks, you know, after the five years or whatever it'll say in the contract. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's and, possible. I don't, I don't know if I want it over in our parks, though. I, I would want it in at least one. Yeah. Of yeah. our parks. Of course, I'd want it at Disneyland. But <laughs> I don't think it should be in both. But I think it's going to become like the Little Mermaid attraction or Mickey's Runaway, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railroad where, or Tower of Terror, where sooner or later it's going to be a staple. Yeah. You know? I, I And I kind of feel like if I had a choice between the two, I mean, we're... It, it obviously would have fit perfectly in the France Pavilion here at mm-hmm. Epcot, but instead That's they decided huge. to put Ratatouille in that space. So that wouldn't that wouldn't really work. It won't work anywhere in the Magic Kingdom without really tearing apart Fantasyland and and messing some of that stuff up. So I honestly I, I would be okay if it was in Disneyland. I, I feel like that would be a better fit for it than Walt Disney World. Walt Disney World, it feels like. It feels like they kind of missed their opportunity to to make it work in a place where it made sense. So they could build it anywhere near um, Be Our Guest, the the restaurant over there in the Magic Kingdom. Is there space behind there or anything? I'd have to relook at a, a Google Earth map of it, but I don't think there's enough for mm. for an attraction of that size uh, back yeah. there without. Without getting rid of something else. Well, Disneyland, they would have to get rid of something else or move into the backstage more, which they seem to be comfortable doing. Yeah. Yeah. These days. I'm trying to figure out, okay, where? You know, because Fantasyland's built out. So it would have to be in a different section. So um, they can always mess around with it and, you know, make it a conjunction piece with Galaxy's Edge. And (laughs) it's. you know, the first order invades theming. Beast Castle and just kind of, you know, mess around with that. Yeah, yeah. It's too bad that there's, um, you know, the, sort of that promenade that goes to Small World. If it's sort of around the corner, you couldn't, they couldn't put something back there. Yeah. You know, there's something, I don't know. I mean, they could always just get rid of more of Tomorrowland. <laughs> just keep whittling away at that. and <laughs> Like they did at Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. It would work. Now I <laughs> I I know you're in the Lego and so they uh you know you built those scary looking Mickey and Minnie Lego sets a while back on and you did a video of it. Have you seen the child Lego set? I saw the one, yeah, because they're doing all the for October or whatever they're doing all the Mandalorian uh Mandalorian special shopping events the entire mm-hmm. month. So yeah, I, I saw it. It's uh, it's it's okay. So I'm I need to get reinvigorated back into the Mandalorian. 
So I haven't I haven't watched it since the series was over just because you know I'm watching a lot of stuff. I don't I'm not always going to just watch the same things over and over and over again and knowing that I have uh, 6 hours to get through the Mandalorian to watch the entire thing in one sitting. It's 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 not something that I can just sit down and watch anytime. So I'm I'm not saying I'm over the child, the baby, whatever we want to call it, uh, but I'm I hopefully I get back in the mood for it before Mandalorian comes on Disney Plus. It's coming up. It's coming up. I'll have to rewatch it. I it it's hard. We're filming this the or we're not filming this at all. We're recording this uh just a couple days after the Emmys and so I still have WandaVision on my mind. I mean, I still have oh, that. Yeah on my mind from when we we first heard about it at d23 expo but then seeing that trailer i am now just i i cannot wait for it that is going to be the must watch thing when when it comes out on disney plus it's going to be Mm -hmm. so good yeah yeah i'm looking forward to that i still don't have my head wrapped around what it is but i'm looking forward to it yeah it's uh, you know it's i feel like no one really has their head completely wrapped around, but just because it does feel so comfortable uh, in that that comparison to Dick Van Dyke show and some of the other 60 staples, but then the Marvel twist with it, too. I think I think it'll just it'll feel it'll feel normal enough. Yeah. That we'll all just buy into the universe anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um we want to just give a reminder about the Give Kids a World Night of a Million Lights from November 13th through um, 2020 to January 1st or January 3rd, 2021. And, you know, this is basically, it's sort of like a little Osborne lights. There's going to be a million lights on the different uh, buildings and all that at, uh, at Give Kids a World. You're going to be able to ride attractions. You're going to get ice cream. Santa Claus will be there. All kinds of stuff is going on. Uh, um, dreams, uh, no, yeah, Dreams of Limited Travel and our Moving to Orlando show are going to sponsor a couple of the villas are going to decorate them. So I'm looking forward to that. You can vote on the ones you like the best. So tickets go on sale October 1st at the Give Kids the World website. So I'm definitely going to go to that when I'm in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then don't forget to Give Kids the World Family Reunion. Well, it's actually the Diz Family Reunion, but it benefits Give Kids the World. And that is March 25th through the 27th of 2021 at the Contemporary Resort. And there's it's basically like a little Destination D event. There's going to be panels with all kinds of speakers in, in the, from the Disney community and Disney shows and all that. And um, there's going to be – there's a special – uh, night at Galaxy's Edge with a dessert party where it's just for all of us there. And there's, um, and who knows what else. So I, I heard today on the Walt Disney World show that the VIP tickets are sold out. So I'm assuming that means there's a few tickets left for the rabble. Yeah. <laughs> which, I, is, which are the tickets I have? <laughs> I wish I had any extra information, but everything I found out about this event has <laughs> come through the same format that you found out, and that's mm-hmm. through the Tuesday show and stuff. So yeah. 
I, I, yeah, the, the VIP is sold out. I'm not sure what the standing is on everything else. I, I know it's still on sale and there's still tickets. I don't know if it's very limited. Uh, if it's an event that you really want to attend, it's better to just feel that way. But, uh, yeah, it's any questions you might have. Again, I, I said it last week, reach out to Stephen Amos, our, our, partner and all of this at give kids of the world Stephen a at gt gktw.org and he'd be able to answer answer any question because uh this is the the diz name is on it but give kids of the world is taking care of all of the details on it so mm-hmm. it's i love hearing the questions that people have about the event i just can't help and i feel yeah. terrible about yeah. it but oh well it's all will be revealed. Yes. <laughs> but, but we'll have a link in our show notes to it. And I hope I see you there. So, uh, just a reminder, we have our Q&A show coming up. The deadline for questions is coming up. It's October 2nd. And then we're looking at a release date of October 12th for the show. And we, we, we're not getting quite as many questions as we usually do. I don't know if we've answered all your questions or what, but um, so anyway, so Craig, do you want to uh, go through how folks can submit their questions and all that? Yeah. So we have our post over at facebook.com slash dis unplugged. It's pinned to the top of that Facebook page. And all you have to do is just leave your question in the comments that we have in there. And we will go through and, and, curate all the questions together and and build the show around that so uh, of course the only things we ask as always is no asking about what would walt think of this or that we're not going to answer it because we don't have any idea and also please ask questions that are not just simple yes or no questions we want to actually be able to have a little discussion Mm -hmm. about it and and throw our input in not just easy simple answering so uh it's uh it's yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna be a fun one, and because we still haven't get gotten that many questions in there, there's there's still room to get your question on the show. So head over again to facebook.com/slash disunplugged, look for that pinned post, and you'll be able to uh, ask away yeah. in there. Yeah, maybe maybe this time we'll actually answer all the questions. <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> <For> once. <laughs> it might happen. Okay, just a reminder about story time with Michael, the rebirth. We are going to actually read the original stories and then uh, by the Grimm brothers or, or Charles Perrault or whomever wrote them. And then we will, uh, and then we'll talk a little about how they were adapted, how the Disney version came to be, you know, just a little. And we're asking that if you are uh, an artist or artistically inclined, if you would like to illustrate any of these stories, uh, you know, we'll promote, of course, your um, artwork and your site that your artwork is on, you know, as we um, read the stories. Because you don't just want to watch me reading the stories. You actually want something to look at. We've even had a, a musician offer to write background music, compose background music for these. So, so it's interesting. Uh, there's one story that has been taken, and that's Cinderella or the Little Glass Slipper. But the others that are still up for grabs is The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red, and The Brave Little Tailor. So if you send an email to both Craig and I, and that I'm Michael at WDWinfo.com, and Craig, yours is what, Craig at DisneyInfo.com? 
Uh, Craig at DisneyInfo.com and uh, also Craig at WDWInfo.com. It's both work and it's kind of 50-50 on which one actually goes through because we are just constantly getting spammed with emails. So just try both. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then we'll get back to you. So on that one. Okay. All right. Well, for the last few weeks, we've recommended that you watch Man in Space and Mars and Beyond on Disney Plus because we plan to talk about them. And as a lead up, Disney historian Todd James Pierce was our guest a few episodes back to talk about Disney animator and legend Ward Kimball, who is one of Walt's nine old men and the producer, director and writer of the Disneyland television um, series Man in Space. In episode 162, we explain, we examine the origins of the series and its first installment, Man in Space. In this episode, we're going to explore the second installment, Man in the Moon, or its later name, Tomorrow the Moon. And this is not currently available on Disney Plus, but is available on YouTube and the Disney Treasures DVD set Tomorrowland. I've been wondering why they didn't release this one. I Maybe because we no already idea. went to the moon? I don't know. <laughs> eh, no, I see I don't I, I don't know because like it's with Man in Space uh, again, a lot of the concepts that that they talked about in Man in Space ended up being very close to the reality of what actually happened. And with Man in the Moon, again, it's a lot of the concepts in in this episode ended up happening, not necessarily with the moon itself, but in, in other ways. So it's, it's one of those things where it would be cool if it was a little bit more accessible to everyone on Disney plus, because it was fascinating to rewatch it back and be like, yeah, this, this ended up happening in this way. And this ended up happening Mm -hmm. in that way. And it's just, it's really neat to see that. Cause again, this was 55. So it was, uh, it was before way before Sputnik. Yep. Yep. It was a couple years before Sputnik. So um, I, I think that's why the the public viewers were just so mesmerized by these episodes. And as we're going to talk about the live action segment, it was very well done. And we'll get into that um, shortly. Well, as we know, Walt Disney dedicated Disneyland on July 17th, 1955, and it opened to the general public on July 18th, 1955 in Anaheim, California. This is just 32 miles from Hollywood. And Walt Disney was already a giant in the film industry. And in 1955, he was on his way to creating the first, really the first multimedia entertainment empire. In October 1955, he premiered his Disneyland television series on the ABC network to cross-promote the park. Uh, each week, Walt presented a program inspired by a particular realm of Disneyland. Fantasyland, Frontierland, Adventureland, Tomorrowland. And that allowed Walt to produce an hour of science fact entertainment and educate viewers on the solar system and the future of space exploration. And these expensive productions brought in Werner von Braun as both a consultant and an on-screen personality. And as we discussed in at some length in our last installment, Werner von Braun first came to the United States through the efforts of Harry Truman's Operation Paperclip, enacted after World War II to acquire Germany's talent before they were recruited by other Allied powers, of course, mainly the Soviet Union. 
um, Operation Paperclip's mission was to recruit the best and brightest German scientists. But they had a stated exclusion of members of the Nazi party. Now, some exceptions were made, but the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency falsified a biography for Nazi Germany's eminent rocket scientist von Braun, and they did the same for many others. To guarantee that the United States military was receiving the top scientists in the field, regardless of their involvement with Hitler's plans. So the military and the public really had no idea of the background of some of these scientists, German scientists that rose to prominence within our space program. In the United States, von Braun rose to prominence in the United States rocket program and in the Army Ballistic Missile Agency and his well-publicized idea that space travel was close to becoming a reality and was instrumental in launching the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. Now, Walt Disney was drawn to von Braun's very big ideas, and he saw him as another fellow dreamer and futurist who also wanted to see his dreams accomplished within his own lifetime. As the Man in Space series evolved, Walt and his storymen decided on three-hour-long Tomorrowland episodes for the Disneyland television series, which would outline von Braun's plans for space travel and then illustrate those concepts through animation and live-action science factual sequences. In an effort to harness artist and animator Ward Kimball's imaginative and exuberant artistry and creativity and personality, Walt tapped him to oversee the creation of these episodes. Now, in the first episode of the series, Man in Space, which we discussed in detail in episode 162 of Connecting with Walt, that first aired on March 9th, 1955. The second episode of the series, Man and the Moon, had its broadcast debut on December 28th, 1955. And the episode followed the same format as Man in Space. The first segment um, presented the early history of the episode subject. This was followed by discussions with experts. And finally, the episode ended with an animated or live action segment in a serious illustrative style. So this episode opens with Walt Disney's introduction to the topic. And in this, he promoted Disneyland and Tomorrowland's Rocket to the Moon attraction before handing it off to Ward Kimball, who then presents the program he and his team of researchers and animators have assembled. He leans forward into the microphone and announces, roll the moon sequence, please. The first segment is the animated short in Walt Ward Kimball's style. It's constantly imaginative. It's filled with visual gags, puns, and artistry and literary references as, as it explores the history of man's fascination with the moon and its influences upon various cultures through art, novels, proverbs, and song. As we're told what primitive man and the Hindus, the Aegeans, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Greeks, and Romans thought of the moon, the animation style adapts as appropriate to the the style of art of these eras. 
We learn of the earliest science fiction stories portraying journeys to the moon, and we're told that in the dark ages, for centuries, the light of knowledge was extinguished, and only a fleeting mention of the moon was made, for which Kimball illustrates by showing an ominous black-cloaked figure murmuring, moon. Yeah, I really loved in this section how the animation was shifting just subtly with each one. Like it, it it's one of those uh, it, it's one of those choices that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily stick out to everyone. But if you do notice it, it's like it's like you're in on it all, and and you really do get it. So yeah, I really I, I liked that about this part of the the yeah. segment. And this is very different from the in-house Disney style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and it was more that uh, experimental uh, um, style of, of animation that Walt was really encouraging his animators to explore, especially with the television show and through other art. Like, the, you know, we taught when we did the little golden book segment when i did that a while back he really wanted them to explore different styles and be really creative and yeah. so i think ward kimball he, he really shown i think in, in this first segment first sequence of this episode yeah and it's still you know it's still that has that touch of mid-century modern to it but at the same time there's a minimalistic side to it it's not not overly done it's not it's not like going and watching snow white and the seven dwarfs it's not that Mm -hmm. level of details so i yeah i i love the experimentation in terms of the animation throughout a lot of these uh disneyland episodes yeah yeah absolutely yeah now ward kimball includes several literary references in the animated segment such as a sequence on johann kepler's lunar fantasy novel somnium with Kepler kidnapped by moon demons and carried across the moon's shadow, where he meets a one-eyed spindly-legged moon creature. And only a few feet apart, they gaze at one another intently through telescopes. And we see Cyrano de Bergerac attempt a journey to the moon, but ending up in Canada before escaping on a rocket of his own construction and landing on the moon to great fanfare. And Romeo and Juliet and Othello orate about the moon on stage. And also illustrated is the Great Moon Hoax. The astronomer John Herschel's reports of seeing lunar life through his telescope, and his visions are animated using Victorian-style cutouts. And then the animated sequence ends with a song, Ah, See the Moon, which includes every word that rhymes with moon. And uh, and as as the illustrations just fly by, and this almost remind this is my favorite uh, of the animated sequences. It's sort of the second part, the literary part, and then the song. It almost reminded me of, of Looney Tunes style. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah, I, I, I completely see it. Yeah, so uh, so I enjoyed it, and then I was thinking, you know, young people who are watching this today, how much would they pick up on the literary references? You know, like Cyrano de Bergerac with the long nose, you know, and things like that. Yeah, so. I, I don't think they were, but I was really proud that when Kylie was watching this with me, that she was picking up on like all of the nursery rhymes and and such with mm-hmm. uh, about the moon and featuring the moon. I was like, wow, 
I sometimes I question her knowledge of any popular culture just because she wasn't she didn't grow up with a lot of of a lot of stuff like that, whether it was TV or even music in some sorts, but like she was singing along with every single nursery rhyme. I'm like, okay, well it's, I wonder if kids today are still learning these nursery rhymes. I don't know. I don't know. Because you know, when I was growing up, we all had our big books Mm -hmm. of nursery rhymes or of mother goose. I had a big mother goose book that I would read of all of these. And some of those nursery rhymes that Ward Kimball included were, um, not well-known ones. Some were old English nursery rhymes, and then some were ones that were more common to the United States. Yeah, but I, I hope children are still learning those. I yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I clearly hope that that they are still learning them. It just seems like one of those things that I could also totally see that if kids just stopped caring about them, because I'm I'm trying to think back to when I was a kid how i learned them i know i know some of the nursery rhymes were just actually they were taught to me directly from my mom saying Mm -hmm. saying them and then others i would learn in either uh you know nursery school or then once you got to kindergarten but it was all these different levels and i just right it, it feels like it feels like it's been a lifetime since i was a kid and learning those that kids today can't be bothered by by small little nursery rhymes because they're too busy singing whatever songs they're learning in Mickey's Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or yeah or I, commercial I, jingles. Well, yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm not quite sure what kids watch today, so I'm not even going to try. Ren and Stimpy. I have no idea. No, no. But, Ren um, and Stimpy is great. You need to rewatch that if you have any ideas I've never about watched that. It. Oh, you give it a shot sometimes i think i think you would actually be blown away the animation style can be really disgusting and crude but a lot that a lot of the music in it they actually use they needed music that was royalty free so they pull a lot of classical music and bring oh, it in okay. so hmm. it's very odd seeing you know hearing um hearing like selections from swan lake uh, <laughs> mixed up then with you know, like eating kitty litter and such. So it's just, Oh, oh charming. Yeah. It's, so, it's very strange, but don't, don't hate okay, on it. Give it a but, shot. All right. Well, I'm, I'm rewatching Looney Tunes from <laughs> HBO Max. So that's my style. Okay. All right. In the second segment, Ward Kimball uh, returns to explain the phases of the moon, the influence uh, moon has upon tides, and finally, the landscape and geology of the moon itself. Now, to audiences today, this might seem elementary, but to the audiences of 1955, this is exciting because we had no probes bringing us back close-up views of either side of the moon. And so from, and, you know, actually, a lot of this could still be used in classrooms today. That, that little sequence that he did. And, uh, because, you know, it, it was science fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now we move, the show progresses from fact and we move to speculation. And then Werner von Braun is introduced to explain. And I loved how he had his slide rule in hand because back then you were smart if you knew how to use a side rule. I was so proud when I, learned how to use a slide rule in school, you know. So I thought, oh, now I'm smart. (laughs) Kind of like the laser pointer of the late 90s before kids had them all over the place. And it was like, you 
you knew everything if you had a laser pointer and used it in class. I guess, yeah. Well, a slide rule, you really did have to know something. Yeah. Laser <laughs> pointers are hard. It. You had to press a button and then point. <laughs> anyway. All right. So with his slide rule, and he's using it as a pointer, he goes through how he believes space travel will be accomplished in the near future. And he describes how a trip to the moon could be made possible in a two-phase trip to the moon. So first, the first phase is by constructing a refueling station in space, a, a space station which is shown as a large wheel-shaped model. Then there's a cutaway diagram of the space station's interior. So at three rotations per minute, the spinning would accomplish an artificial gravity for the astronauts inside. This is a concept we would see again in Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I know Kubrick did a lot of research for 2001. And, and I wonder if he went and he watched this episode. <laughs> because had to that have. looked a lot like the, the space station in 2001. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could argue that that was it, theoretically, it makes sense with the circular, uh, the circular pattern with that. It, it, it does just click, but it was it was just a little bit too close that you have yeah. to assume that he he borrowed a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. Well, this station would serve as a staging area for the second part of the trip to the moon. And so Von Braun said, our space satellite, which is the station, will have the shape of a wheel measuring 250 feet across. This outside rim will contain living and working quarters for a crew of 50 men. Just below the radio and radar antenna is an atomic reactor, and its heat will be used to drive a turbo generator, which supplies the station with electricity. So, then we move into the final live-action segment, based on the concepts just described by Von Braun. And so for this segment, Walt Disney commissioned the construction of models of the moon, the RM-1 rocket ship, Space Station 1 that we just talked about, plus interiors decorated with flashing buttons, levers, and consoles with animated displays, and actors, you know, wearing spacesuits and helmets. So when an astronaut travels from the moonship to the space station, he's wearing a special spacesuit suit that's a a multi-limb pod. And Disney archivist Dave Smith said that Von Braun invented this special spacesuit for Man in the Moon, and he nicknamed it the Bottle Suit. And the suit is a miniature space vehicle with its own atmosphere and rocket propulsion system, along with manipulator arms to accomplish assembly work in space. I know that space suit made a lot of sense to me. I don't know how practical it would be in real life, but... Yeah, it was a little bit ridiculous. So I feel like <laughs> Well, I couldn't figure out how they use the arms on the back. That I was, guess he turned around. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of my thing with it was like I could understand like four arms in the front that would give you like a hundred eighty degrees of of uh arm movements and such, but then the ones on the back it just it, it seemed like you you would have had to train your entire life just solely to use that machine. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. During their flight to the moon, the astronauts cope with a fuel leak 
in one of the rocket tanks, and they explore the far side of the moon. Now, the mission of this spacecraft is a scouting trip to the far side of the moon to gather information with no landing attempted. It may remind some of the Rocket to the Moon attraction at Disneyland with a look at the dark side of the moon. And as the RM-1 moonship travels to the unknown side of the moon, or or also known as the dark side, the ship is plunged into shadows and darkness, and the captain shouts, Okay, Frank, fire your flares at three-minute intervals. And an animated flare arcs above the lunar surface, and the unexplored and never-before-seen craters and plains are briefly exposed by a flash of light. Now, Considering that we were still more than a decade away from reaching the moon, these close-ups of the model surface look amazingly close to real documentary footage yeah. of the moon. Yeah, it uh, it looked, you know, it, it looked really, really good. So, I, it, but it, it's kind of like everything in these episodes. It is, it's so wild to see how close they got to it considering how far away we were still from from actually coming close to to being that close to the moon so mm-hmm. uh it, it it a lot of this this element felt realistic so they were not firing the flares every three minutes i counted about every 10 seconds but i'll give them a pass <laughs> on that yeah well, you know, time is relative in space, I guess. I don't know. True. Yeah. And I think I also saw Pink Floyd performing somewhere on the dark side of the moon, but I'm not sure about that either. Then the ship's crew discovers a high degree of radioactivity from one of the hidden areas. Uh, the contour mapper also reports some strange formations. And the captain commands, get some flares in that area, quick. And another animated flare is fired, and we see... What? Did Ward Kimball include a hint of extraterrestrial life on the dark side of the moon? Maybe that's where Pink Floyd was performing. Um, That's where the fans came from to (laughs) to watch them. Yeah. Now, the special effects in this live action sequence are superior to many science fiction films of the day. And it must have been very captivating for television audiences in 1955. I mean, I think they're still better than a lot of stuff that's on TV today. (laughs) Low budget B, C, D horror movies that you'll see on sci-fi channel and stuff. It's a lot of the effects that were still being used back then in 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s has aged better than the overuse of CGI in in this day and age. So Mm -hmm. 2001 is the perfect example of that. It's a lot of that looks more realistic than anything they could ever do with CGI. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, as the moonship prepares to return to the space station, what we are told the next goal is to uncover the mysteries of the red planet Mars. And an umbrella-shaped ship called the Mars One is shown drifting between the space station and Earth. And this would be the subject of the next Tomorrowland program, Mars and Beyond. And since we knew even less about Mars than we did the moon in the mid-1950s, Ward Kimball would be given a greater creative license to let his animators um, let loose their imaginations. And then 45 years later, they, they tried, Disney tried to tackle Mars again and yeah. with mission to Mars. And uh, 
Mm-hmm. They definitely let their imaginations loose on that one. So that's what we should well, I was, cover that too. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking of that movie. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. That's Mission to Mars with uh, Gary Sinise and oh. Tim Robbins and Don Cheadle. Now I was thinking of Red oh, Planet. Gosh. No, no, it was, it just came out a few <laughs> years ago. That's such a space. Oh, um, the, John Carter. <laughs> oh, John, John Carter, Carter of Mars. Mars. Oh, t- yeah. I thought you were talking about that one. No, but I mean, it's there's been a lot of Mars movies because there then we also been. had the Matt Damon one as well, too. Yeah. And Mars needs women. <laughs> Just so much. <laughs> so, so many Mars movies. <laughs> okay. At the end of the episode, Walt Disney introduces next week's Fantasyland episode of When Knighthood Was in Flower, which is actually the 1953 Walt Disney live-action film, The Sword and the Rose. And I'm curious as to why he renamed it. So, um, anyway. And then after the credits, there's a preview of the studio's next theatrical release, The Littlest Outlaw. So, Man in the Moon cost $350,000 to produce even with using a significant portion of live action rather than animation. Ward Kimball said if they had animated the final segment, the cost would have been closer to $900,000, which in 1955 money, that's a lot. Um, Plus, filming it as live action made it more believable. When Man in the Moon was rebroadcast in 1959, as I mentioned earlier, it was renamed Tomorrow the Moon, and that has become its official title. Um, Frank Gerstel um, portrayed the captain and had played bartenders, police lieutenants, and cowboys in a variety of television shows. The other crew members of The Navigator, Engineer, and Radio Man were portrayed by Richard Emery, Frank Connor, and Leo Needham. The pair of pilot chairs for the cockpits were from a Boeing 737, and the two aft crew chairs were from a Douglas 618M. The helmets were real prototypes borrowed from a research lab, but the spacesuits were designed by studio artist Ken O'Connor with input from Von Braun and writer Bill Boschi. So in an interview with E-Ticket Magazine, Ward Kimball said, We filmed live actors in spacesuits working with realistic models. We shot them against a black background with little holes pricked in it for stars, and then the miniatures would be doubled in. We actually took the space wheel model and showed it flying and rotating around as if it were seen in space by the actors in the cockpit of the moon rocket. We posed the live action with the model in the background. We didn't have a sodium screen back then, so we had to make masks using a traveling mat. If we had available all this new computer animation they have now, it would have been easy and more realistic. So now here's a trivia question. Why is the spacecraft named RM-1? Well, according to Disney historian and author Jim Corcus, it comes from the Collier Magazine articles this series is based on and stands for Reconnaissance Moon. It is a recon mooncraft to go around the moon. And since it's the first one, it's labeled number one. For the accurate model of the moon, Kimball stated... We went over to the Griffith Park Observatory and met with the astronomer who had built their big moon model. He had carefully sculpted the familiar side of the moon seen from Earth. 
we got permission to go in there and make accurate rubber impressions from that model and then built our own moon model at the studio. Then he said, we designed ours so that it went clear around to the other side. We were advised that the other side of the moon was probably much like the side we could see. I wanted something that could suggest ruins, like a lost civilization. Von Braun and the others were against it, but we showed it briefly. It was ambiguous as to what it really might be. So yes, indeed, he did intend to show a a lost civilization, extraterrestrial life there. And there was going to be more in this series, and one of them was going to be on extraterrestrial life. We'll get into why in a future episode why that wasn't made. But then I came across an article. You know, Ward Kimball said that it was an astronomer who built their big moon model. But then in my research, I came across an article that said the model of the moon was approved by an artist, Roger Hayward, who had created the model for the Griffith Observatory and Planetarium in Los Angeles and the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. And then this model was set up and used again when Walt Disney showed this episode at the studio for the American Rocket Society. Now, the elaborate space paintings were rendered by Al Dempster and William Lane. The animation was by Julius Svensson, Arthur Stevens, Joe Hale, Jack Boyd, Charles Down, and Con Peterson. And an educational brochure published to promote Man in the Moon said, This film presents a realistic and believable trip to the moon in a rocket ship, not in some far-off fantastic never-never land, but in the near foreseeable future. Now, a reviewer for the New York Times wrote the following after the show aired. This is the kind of material that Walt Disney's technicians can devise their brightest graphic effects, and they made the most of it. Man in the Moon was well received, except for some criticism of the whooshing noise made by the flares on the dark side of the moon, since there is no (laughs) sound in space. Kimball defended it as dramatic license, although he admitted that scientist Willie Lay told him there should not have been sound in airless space. Of course, today, virtually every science fiction film set in space has all kinds of sound and noise and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just exhibit A Armageddon. Uh, breaking <laughs> well, every <Star> single trick <laughs> yeah it's uh, every everything breaks rules when it comes to that so uh that's you know it, it's a choice it's a choice for mm-hmm. sure but i'm i i wasn't going to just dismiss everything we watched in in man in the moon just solely on those those little bit of sound effects that they added in so mm-hmm. i thought it helped with the believability so i i'm okay oh i with agree it. I agree. And I think this is a very strong episode. And it, it sort of gets dismissed because Man in Space and Mars and Beyond get all the attention. And Man in the Moon in the series has always been sort of the forgotten episode. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And like we've been saying, the technology that they depict is really astonishing for 1955. Yeah, I... I personally felt like Man in the Moon to me had a better flow than than Man in Space. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm gonna wait until I, I've watched 
Mars and Beyond once recently, but I'll wait to really weigh in with that uh, once we get we get closer to when we do that episode. But I will say, if I had to choose between Man in Space or Man in the Moon, I think Man in the Moon was a better episode, and yeah. I loved the live action portion at the end just because. Again, it had that extra believability that I think, even though I love seeing different styles of animation, there was something about the live action that just brought it to life a little bit, a little bit more. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's a, a shame that it doesn't get as much love as the other ones. Yeah, I agree, and I and I do prefer the animation in this episode. Then I do the man in space. I thought they were more daring, more mm-hmm. experimental, mm-hmm. and it, the story was better. Yep, and flowed better, it, as you were saying. And it's not a knock on man in space. I think they did a lot of interesting things with oh, that yeah. one too. It's just this one to me, it just resonated a little mm-hmm. bit more. But I can understand how a lot of people wouldn't necessarily take on this one because ultimately the hilarious thing about man in the moon is while we haven't used any of the methods that they came up with in this episode yet to get to the moon. I mean, they kind of, this did reflect jokingly. It reflected Armageddon where they fly up to the international space station and then dock there and then do the slingshot around the earth so they can go to the asteroid. So it kind of, it kind of, that mirrored what they came up with in this episode. But this episode in general, like it's just with how they built the space station and a lot of the methods that went into that, like that was just on exhibit in this episode. So it was really cool for that portion. But in terms of getting to the moon, not, not as much. So we know ultimately that happened a little bit more differently, but. Uh, it's still it's still so interesting to see how much they they were ahead of their time with what they knew was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Well, now we're going to travel from soaring around the moon to soaring back through time with this week in Disney history. All right. Well, here we are at the end of September. We're in fall. So, okay, we're going to start out with September 27th. Which opening day attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios closed on September 27th, 2014? Opening day attraction, that time period. It's got to be. If it was an opening day, it has to be the Backlot Tour. Absolutely. The Studio Backlot Tour opened since the park's debut on March 1st, 1989, when the park was called Disney MGM Studios. It was a combination of a walking and tram tour through the Backlot area. The first incarnation of the Backlot Tour loaded at the former entrance to the magic of Disney animation. The original tour was far longer and more elaborate than the final version. And, you know, I mean, Carol and I went on it, on this, you know, when it first opened and all that. And it was interesting, but it just seemed so forced mm-hmm. because almost nothing had been filmed there. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I I never experienced the long version of the Backlot Tour, but I, I can totally understand that just from, you know, visiting Walt Disney World and then also like – with me uh, working at Universal for the time that I did, like 
the fact that they would still boast about how it was a real working studio when I was there. And the stuff that was made there was embarrassingly bad for the most part. So it's like, eh, eh. the idea of doing tours around these studios in Florida that were basically being used for nothing didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Plus I grew up, of course, in California, we used to Universal Studios Hollywood, which back then was, they didn't have the theme park. Yeah. You know, growing yeah. up, it was just, it was a real backlot tour and you did the tram tour. So I, by comparison, you know, I mean, you know, Disney MGM Studios just didn't have the history. Yeah. Like and, saying. I mean, it's, it's different when you have gone to a real working studio and then go to a theme park studio. Completely mm-hmm. different. <laughs> okay, September 28th. What project did Disney CEO Michael Eisner cancel on September 28th, 1994? Hmm. Um, I might have my timelines messed up with all of this but maybe maybe the the long beach project no but you're on the right track it was he canceled the disney's america project okay okay yeah and and, and this is a theme park dedicated to the history of the united states it was to have been built by the walt disney company in haymarket virginia and because of opposition from citizens groups, the project was canceled and, you know, cause they were so concerned about preserving history. So of course now a um, shopping mall is, is in its place, a parking lot and all that. So g- good job there. Haymarket Virginia and preserving your history. <laughs> shopping is important too. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows? It might be a dying mall for all we know at this yeah, point, probably but um, it's too bad. We'll do an episode on this um, someday. This project is, it was interesting. Yeah. Remnants of it could be found in Disney's California Adventure. Um, anyway, September 29th. It is announced on September 29th, 2008, that classical music composer Philip Glass has been commissioned by the New York City Opera to compose an opera that imagines the final months in the life of Walt Disney. What is the title of this opera? I have no idea because I've never heard of this. <laughs> oh, this is infamous. It, the opera The Perfect American is based on what was a recent novel by American-born writer Peter Stephen Junk, Stefan Junk, I don't know, in which a fictional Austrian cartoonist who worked for Disney in the 1940s to 50s recounts the story of the legendary founder of the Walt Disney Company. It is scheduled to open the City Opera's 2012-2013 season and honor the composer's 75th birthday. It never did. Although originally commissioned by New York City Opera, The Perfect American will debut in Madrid in January 2013 and then it'll it'll debut in London a short time later. Uh, it's available on YouTube. This is dreadful, dreadful. It um, it got negative reviews. It depicts Walt Disney as a power hungry racist, hmm. and it's it's worth seeing if you can get through it. But um, anyway, it, it's it's horrible. <laughs> oh. And and I and I don't like the um, you know it's very modern. It's that modern 
music that has like it's all it has dissonance and all that kind of stuff which i don't have an ear for but you sold me on uh, it i'm i'm going to seek it out and watch you, you it you you have to you absolutely have to and, and it, it's just and, and tell me what you think I, I sat through it once years ago um when youtube you know it first became available on youtube and oh dear lord so. uh, like any theater outing i have i'll make sure i have uh a lot of wine with me and maybe I'll be able to get through it all. Yeah. Anyway, the sinking's very good. <laughs> okay. September 30th. What exhibit in Disneyland's main street opera house closed after a near two year run on September 30th, 1963. Um, I know toy uh, babes in Toyland was in there at, one point in time, so maybe I'll guess that. You're correct. That's right. The Babes in Toyland exhibit. They had nothing to put in the opera house at that time. So it featured the actual sets and props in Walt Disney's mu- musical fantasy film, Babes in Toyland. Maybe we can get a time machine and get the, what was it already called? I already forgot. Perfect, Perfect American, and we can put that in uh-huh. the opera house. <laughs> yes oh i'm sure uh, i'm sure the new york opera would love to restage that somewhere <laughs> since they never really got to do it themselves i don't know if it ever made united states debut i just remember the furor over that <laughs> oh my gosh it was quite amazing okay october 1st norwegian marathon runner greta Waits is born Greta Anderson in Oslo, Norway on October 1st, 1953, a nine-time winner of New York City marathons between 1978 and 1988. She also won a silver medal at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles and a gold medal at the 1983 World Championships in Athletics in Finland. What is her Disney connection? Mm, I have no idea. And I might be mispronouncing her name, which could be, well, I'm sure I am, with apologies to our um, Norwegian listeners. Um, there is a statue cast in bronze, which stands in front of the Norway Pavilion at Epcot, which depicts a graceful runner in mid-stride. The larger-than-life oh. bronze sculpture, sculpted by Norwegian artist Nils Oh, I'm, I'm frightened. It might take us off the air if I should pronounce this name right. Ace, I'm going to say, is of weight. I support that, yeah. <laughs> um, the, anyway, so this is her, that statue. Okay. The statue yeah. is presented to Walt Disney World by the Foundation for the Promotion of Athletics in Norway to honor Waits' lifelong support of women's distance running, as well as her inspiration for young and physically challenged athletes. Waits is one of the very few historical figures to be honored with a life-size statue at Walt Disney World. Yeah, very few. (laughs) But isn't that interesting? That is, yeah. No, I I never knew that. Okay, October 2nd. A Walt Disney World and Walt Disney World and NASA celebrate the cosmic achievement of the longest tenured crew member in space with a ticker tape parade down Main Street, USA in the Magic Kingdom on October 2nd, 2009. What is the name of this astronaut? I have a feeling this is going to be a trick question, and it's going to be something <laughs> stupid like Buzz Lightyear. 
You're absolutely right. <laughs> Buzz spent more than 15 months of dedicated service on board the International Space Station as part of an education initiative between Disney Parks and NASA. Also attending this day's event, <laughs> yeah, we'll just mention him in passing, is Apollo astronaut Buzz Aldrin, second man to walk on the moon, and International Space Station astronaut Michael Fink. Well, so. I'm glad they had someone real there because it's so insulting to all the astronauts. <laughs> that uh, little Buzz Lightyear, we got to throw him a parade. 15 yes. months. Uh, okay, October 3rd. Which Fantasyland attraction opened at Walt Disney World on the Magic Kingdom's third day in of business on October 3rd, 1971? It's not an opening day attraction. I, I'm not sure. It's Peter Pan's Flight. Oh, I yeah. thought it was an opening day attraction. Nope, wow. opens three days later, so... I feel cheated. We're on the third day of operation, so two days later, I guess. Okay. But, but anyway, so yeah, there you go. So I had to throw in one space, one right. in there with Buzz Lightyear, given that topic that. of our show. Yeah, we got lucky there. <laughs> we did. We did. Well, in our next installment of our look at the Man in Space series, we're going to examine a third episode, Mars and Beyond, which is available on Disney+, Plus, the Disney Treasure DVD series Tomorrowland, and on YouTube. Now, for some reason, the YouTube version has an NBC intro tagged onto it. Maybe because the person that put it up there thought, well, if it's in color, NBC was the network running color at the time but not realizing it was on ABC and the Walt, Walt Disney had these segments um, filmed in color, which added to the expense. Yeah. So anyway, and Craig will include a link in our show notes so our listeners can watch it in advance. Some references I used for the show is the book, The Vault of Walt, Outer Space Edition by Jim Corcus, and some online articles on the NASA website, the Disney Von Braun collaboration and its influence on space exploration. Disneyland Man in the Moon 1955 by Jeff Kuykendall. I I, I don't know what it is with me and names. I say them in my head correctly. (laughs) And then Walt Disney Treasures Tomorrowland, Disney in Space and Beyond by Rodney Figueroa. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, it'll be, there'll be a link in our show notes. So apologies to Rodney. <laughs> so, so, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? You can find me on all the random shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network and then always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages like how to pronounce these names. <laughs> at Michael, I need a coach. Michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling connecting with Walt. It's the page you want to go to. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. You can, you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. 
And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. I think actually also now Amazon Podcasts as well, too. But I need to double check on that. So, Oh, that's exciting. Thank you. Okay. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.